Well, amen. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah 9. And uh, we'll bring our Christmas message from Isaiah 9. Last week we started uh, into this um, verse in uh, verse number 6. Let's read verse 6 and 7 today. Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a, a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called... Wonderful, the Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of His government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon His kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. And uh, the zeal of the Lord of hosts shall perform this. Heavenly Father, I pray for the presence of Your Holy Spirit. Guide us in this message, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We looked today, uh, last week we talked about the first part of this verse. For unto us, in verse 6, a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And today we want to speak about his name shall be called. His name shall be called. The difference is who the child was. Now we have talked about today, the children mentioned how he was born uh, in a stable or a manger, laid there in the manger where they would feed the, the animals uh, there. And, uh, but uh, the difference, I, you know, other children have been born uh, all through history in different places. I know a missionary who was escaping in Africa, escaping from one country's revolution, and uh, going in the back of a 4 by 4 pickup truck in a, with a canopy over the top, and they were escaping and running from one country into another. And uh, his wife uh, was uh, in labor in the back of the pickup truck running from the gunshots. And uh, with a cell phone in his ear, he, with a doctor on the other line, uh, he was able to deliver uh, their, one of their children in the back while they were escaping uh, from the fire of uh, a revolution going on in their country. Uh, an interesting story. People have been born throughout history in different places. I think until I was old enough to understand what my mother meant, I thought I was born in a barn. Every time I left the front door open, my mother would say, close the front door, were you born in a barn? And I thought probably I was, that's what she meant. Uh, but I, apparently I was uh, just, she was just trying to get me to learn the habit of shutting the, do the door behind me. Okay, so uh, it isn't that people were not born in dire conditions before the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, rather, we have here uh, the fact of who was born in that manger, laid in that manger. Who was born in that stable? And the Bible says, His name shall be called. Now, you can call people names that aren't really true. We say sticks and stones, right? And you can finish it later. Uh, but names will never hurt you. But you've been called names, uh, right, Brother Rick? We've been called names. Go out and uh, visit people, knock on doors, and you'll get called some names. Um, but the Bible, when the Bible calls a designation of a name, there is a truth, an unchangeable, an, uh, an infallible truth being said. You cannot call, God cannot call or designate a name without that name being absolutely and perfectly and eternally correct. When he designates these things about the son, the boy, 
born in Bethlehem, a body given, a body of flesh given to the Son of God. Uh, the unique relationship that we can't comprehend, called in theology the hypostatic union, the union of Christ the God, the Son, with a human body, two natures, with one person, without losing any of His humanity or losing any of the experience of being human, it's never been done, so it needs its own designation. We call it a hypostatic union. It's an impossibility, but yet possible because of the miracle of God. And uh, he would then be called 100% God and 100% man. And uh, of course, that doesn't add up to 100% person. Uh, and that's the whole, the whole conundrum of the person of Jesus Christ and the Trinity. God the Father. God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So we get into these designations. I don't want you to think about just something somebody wrote 740 years before Christ. okay? Uh, but something that was designated by God as a preserved, inspired truth that God is. Who is He? Well, first He talks about praise. He is wonderful. He is to be praised. He is the wonderful Savior. He is wonderful because of His character. He is the never-changing God. Malachi tells us that in chapter 3. And it says in verse 6, uh, I am the Lord thy God, I change not. Therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Do you know that everything you believe, uh, everything you are, depends on upon the immutability of God. He doesn't change. He was God before He came here. And by the way, immutability needs to survive the incarnation. God was, and what was God, and what is eternal and unchanging about God, remained the same when He took upon Himself the form of a servant and became uh, in human flesh. In as a man, he was still 100% God. Uh, he emptied himself, they say. It's the uh, old the theological uh, 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 concept, a theory called they call kenosis. The idea that he took his, himself, his attributes, and while he was here, he gave them off uh, so that he could fit into humankind. No, that's not really accurate. The only thing he emptied himself of, the Bible says that he left some of his glory in heaven. Because in John 17, 5, he prays to the Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with thee before the world was. He's eternal God. He emptied himself of nothing, friend, nothing. He was God 100% in the flesh. He made decisions while he was here that, that uh, he did things as a man. And doing so, he shielded. Or, for instance, there were things that he did not know while he was here. But it wasn't his inability to know. It was a choice that he makes. You say, does God do that? Yeah, he chooses what to remember. Um, you and I can't do that, but God can. Uh, he says, your sins... And your iniquities will I remember no more. So theologically, God is God. He is a wonderful God. He is the wonderful God because of His character, who He is. So friend, what that means is that God is dependable. 
I mean, you can just step right out on faith. God says to do something, you can just trust that He's going to meet you there. Uh, Whether it be personally trusting in eternity, trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ, can God be trusted? Well, He's dependable. He's more dependable than man. Yesterday, a guy uh, cursed at God uh, with me there, and he cursed and swore at God and said he hated God uh, because of the troubles that he's been through in this world. Now, God is not the author of your troubles. Uh, That's man's fault. And you are and I am uh, reaping from the accumulation of generations of fallen man's wrong decisions. They're all around us. Uh, we have we have everything around us to blame on the decisions of man. So people ask the question, why does God not fix all of those things? And the answer is that God could not give you a free will and then keep you from exercising that free will at the same time. And so the problem in man has is that we want to demand our free will and then we don't want to live with the consequences of our free will. Uh, We don't want to live with the consequences of our decision. Does that sound familiar? Uh, So we invent abortion, the godless killing of unborn children, because they want to have a will apart from the commands of God, but they don't want the results that come from that. Well, uh, people that are upset with God because of the accumulated uh, results of man's bad decisions that you and I have to live with uh, in this dirty, sin-filled, fallen world uh, are the kind of people that say, I'm going to blame God for that, but God is not to blame for that. We have to look at man and blame man. And you say, why doesn't God come and fix it? Well, that's a pretty simple answer as well. He's on his way. He's on his way. He has set a designated time uh, that the wonderful Savior is going to return. Uh, He tells us to look for that blessed appearance, the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, watch because I'm on my way to fix it. You say, then why doesn't he come? He's God. He can come at any time. The answer is found in 2 Peter 3, verse number 9, that God is not slack as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Uh, Go back to the day that you were saved. Uh, I know one person here saved in September, right, Rachel? And then one other people can tell me the days that you were saved. I was saved in the summer of 1986. And friend, I can go back to that day and I can say, I'm so glad that the Lord waited in patience, waiting for me to know him, to have my sins washed away. I'm glad for the mercy of God to wait for a sinner People say, well, why doesn't God come and fix everything right now? Because he loves the sinner. He loves you. He could have come one minute before you trusted Christ. But he's waiting till an appointed time. And he's waiting for you to get saved. And you know why? Because no matter what anybody else says, that this person's wonderful. We talk about Caesar Augustus. It doesn't matter if Caesar thinks he's exalted friend. But God is a wonderful God because of His character. He's also wonderful because of His care for us. Oh man, God cares for His own. He talks about us like sheep. I mean, He could have said we were like cattle. But He called us sheep. He called us sheep because we reflect the same characteristics. We are vulnerable. We can't lead ourselves. We can't even feed ourselves. 
And uh, we can't do these things. We need a shepherd. And the Lord says, I am the good shepherd. But he's not a hireling. A hireling is somebody who said, when the enemy comes, when the lion roars, when the bear comes, or when the enemy comes over and tries to steal the sheep, the hireling, he jets, he runs. I'm not going to get killed. I'm not going to die to try to fight a lion. But the good shepherd is like King David out there in the wilderness. As a shepherd boy and the lion roared, he went and grabbed that lion by his beard, trusting in God that God would defend him. He had a bear that did the same thing, and God enabled him to overcome both. Friend, we have somebody greater than David in our verse. He is God in the flesh. And he's your savior who did everything for you. He rose from the dead, conquering the greatest evil of mankind, death. He can do anything, anything for us. And he will do for you because he says, you are my sheep and I am the shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. He protects us and he cares for us. He has even formed you for a reason. Did you ever get to the place? Now, I'm going to speak here to all the melancholies in the room. All right? I mean, all of you Mel's, I want you to pay attention. What I mean, melancholy? All of you that are like half of the time you're hanging right over the edge of being depressed. All right? Because uh, you're just like me. All right? Now, I want you to pay attention. The sanguines and the people that are like total cholerics, y'all just be patient with us for a minute. Okay? All right? So have you ever looked in the mirror and said, why did God make me this way? The rest of you sanguines never thought that. Cholerics never crossed their mind. Never even one time thought. God, why? You know how many times I've prayed alone in, the, in my prayer closet? God, why didn't you send somebody to start this church who knew what they were doing? You ever been that way? And I'll tell you, it's a God of, that we could call the wonderful God who formed you as a child, the Bible says, from the mother's womb, who gave you the word of God, who gently led you to the salvation in Christ, who has made you with your characteristics because he has purposed you for a place and a people and a job, a purpose. Because God is wonderful because he cares for us. You are exactly the way God wanted you to be. You have just the characteristics God wants you to be. You have just the opportunity to succeed in this life as anybody else. And my friend, listen to me. You have some good characteristics that others who are sanguines sometimes just fly by the seat of their pants. Sanguines have a time when they just know they're going to succeed. Whereas a melancholy personality walks and says, God, if this is going to work, it's going to be because of you. And we take a gentle step. We take another and another. And we're all the time saying, God, I can't do this. You must do this through me. And that's the kind of person God loves to use. He's a wonderful God. He's a wonderful God. When God says a name, He designates it's always true. And He is our God. This wonderful God, wonderful in His character, wonderful in His care. He's also wonderful in His counsel. All of the wisdom of the world. 
can be wrapped up in the mind of God and God would look at it and compare it and say, that's pretty simple. Is that the best you can come up with? He said that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where he says the wisdom of of this world is foolishness with God. And man looks up at the world and they look and they deny the existence of God. But there's so many mysteries that they can't even uncover. They can't figure out in the science lab exactly how things are put together. There are so many things they're discovering, but every every time they make a major uh, uh, step in the discoveries, they find there's so much more to be discovered. The farther they can see, the more they see stars beyond where they can see at that point. And God says, sorry, on the fourth day of creation, I just threw them out there. And said, these stars, you go where I want you to be. Wow. He's wise. He's an omniscient God. He knows your thought afar off. He's a caring God. He'll compile these together. This wonderful God who in His character can't fail. In everything He does is truth. Everything that He cares for you in such a way like nobody else could care for you. But He's also full of all the wisdom beyond that of anything in this world. And the Lord said, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Right? James chapter 1 verse 5. That giveth to all men liberally that means not a little but then in the next verses let him ask in faith nothing wavering for he that wavers like the wave of the sea driven to the wind and tossed but he said to the double-minded man he said but let not that man think that he shall receive anything from god so he says come to him in faith believing and god says i'll give you the wisdom that man will marvel at he's a wonderful god The Lord designates him in praise. Wonderful! When you listen to Handel's Messiah this Christmas, and they sing this song, Wonderful Counselor. Think about these things. Secondly, not only praise, but look at the perception. The perception, no one gives such wonderful counsel. And I got into this already. Uh, Matthew says, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass away, One jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. He is the counselor. Where are you going to go for your important decision making? It's ridiculous to me that when people have problems, uh, I know I knew a preacher. I was, the circumstances I'm trying, I've been trying to remember, but I remember this preacher telling me that concerning his counseling, he pulled out a wallet. And in his wallet, he had a series of business cards. He'd say, what are you having problems with? And he'd pull out, this is if they have marriage problems. Here's a professional marriage counselor. And then i give that to him. If you have uh, uh, emotional problems, here's a good Christian psychologist. And he gives it to him and says, go see that one. And, and he, he is not ever opening the Bible and dealing with people's lives and answering their problems. He's just referral. He's like the doctor you go to at the beginning when you really have a problem and you don't really want to see that doctor, but you have to see him so that he can refer you to the guy that hopefully can find the answer, right? And then you find out after a while that it's a lot of times, you, like Brother Tonks, you're just referral to referral to referral to referral. And uh, after a while, they just give up on you, right? This is kind of the truth. And that's the way people are. But you know, we have a God in heaven 
and He has inscripted the answers for life permanently. They cannot be erased. Go with me back, if you will. Hold your place here because we're going to preach on this. Back to this 12th Psalm. Psalm 12. Psalm 12. And we'll find in verse number 6 of this passage, the words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Verse 7, Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation and forever. So the Lord says, I'm going to write down my scriptures. He didn't say he'd write down his thoughts. He said words. And uh, all the words are pure. All that's inspired is from God, and God says He's going to keep them. Who's going to keep them? Well, what about scribal error? When God says, I'm going to keep them, He will keep them, He has the ability to override the scribal errors. That's why we believe in the purity of the text. What about uh, losing the faith? What about it going underground and being buried on golden plates? (laughs) Right? Is that possible? When Joseph Smith had his first encounter with whatever spirit had met with him there in New York, they said, all of Christendom has fallen into darkness. Has it? Is that possible? The Lord says, thou shalt keep them, thou shalt preserve them from this generation. What does that mean? To the people. It's not just that the word of God exists. is that it could never be done away. Ask Voltaire, who swore to eradicate the Bible. And after his death, they used his house as a printing press to print Bibles. The Lord has a sense of humor, right? Amazing, isn't it? You can get rid of everything else, but you can't get rid of what God declares. And he inscripted his word. This book has every answer. Now, also compile that verse with another verse in Matthew 16, where Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It doesn't matter what raging the devil does. It doesn't matter what kind of evil is out there. The word of truth in his word will never disappear from this earth until he takes us home to heaven. It's God's word. Say, can a church fail? Oh, Revelation tells us that. Chapter 2 and 3, that if you don't get yourself right, uh, Ephesus, I'm going to take your candlestick away, the presence of God. And today there's no church at Ephesus. You go there, it's no longer there. Can a church fail? Yes, but the word and his churches, the, the purity of the text and the purity of a church that will, it can never disappear from the face of the earth. Why? Because he's counselor. He's preserved all this. And you say, what do I do if I have a problem with drinking? Go to the Word of God. He tells you how to overcome sin and temptation. What if I have a marriage problem? He tells you how to have a good marriage. What about my children? It's, it's right here. It's in the Word of God. What about my finances? The principles are right here in the Word of God. Everything we need to solve the problems of this evil world is found inscripted because he is wonderful. And he's counselor. Now, quickly, he's the mighty God. The mighty God. I, I've been accused uh, by people saying, oh, he's not God. He's just one of many gods. Well, the Bible says he is the mighty God. 
So there are two different aspects of this. One is that you cannot be God and have his characteristics without being the God. Now get this, philosophically, if there are many gods, there is no God. If we are all just on an evolution toward godhood or what people have called godhood, that is, we become stronger than others, wiser than others, have superpowers that others don't have. All right? I mean, it's like make-believe. But if we are all heading that direction, there is no God. Because the idea of God is a sovereign, solitary sovereign. Somebody, some, some entity, whether we understand him or we do not understand him, he must be different in order to create everything else. To accomplish what the first chapter of, of Genesis says, he has to be a God of great wisdom and a God of immense control and power. The creative power of God. Who is this God? He is wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God. Now you're back in Isaiah. Can you go to Isaiah? Turn with me to a couple passages of scripture. Look at chapter 43 of Isaiah. Go to 43 verse 11. Uh, verse 11, please. I, even I, am the Lord. Now see that? All capitals. L-O-R-D. That's Jehovah. It's a Hebrew word. Jehovah, or however they pronounce it. People say they want to say Yahweh. But it's Jehovah. They knew how to pronounce their letters. And beside me there is no Savior. So who is the Savior? Jehovah? Is there anybody else that can be involved in this? No. There's a solitary nature to this now, 1 John tells us in chapter 4, verse 14, and Jesus was sent to be the Savior of the world. So who is Jesus? He's the Savior. Who is the Savior? Jehovah. Who are they? They are the mighty God. Oh, you use the plural. Well, the Bible does. In the beginning, Elohim, plural. God created the heavens and the earth. What's interesting is, that the word that is there for created is singular. The verb is singular. The noun, Elohim, is plural. Why? Because he is one. Or they are one. However, they is one is the way you'd have to say it. It is, it is uh, written in the word. Now, there'll be those that'll say, well, we know. We know where the doctrine of the Trinity came. It came from the Catholic Church. Now, please understand that the Catholic Church, they were in control of a lot of things. They were in control of a lot of things. And they had their councils. They divided the known world up at their time after the apostles uh, by 200 and something A.D. They divided the known world into five compartments. They called it patriarchal seas. Like Constantinople, Jerusalem, Antioch of Damascus, right by Syria, down in Alexandria and in Rome. Okay, And so they had these patriarchal seas and they met together to determine uh, what to teach in all of the churches concerning clarification of doctrines. They came to 451 A.D. And they had a council. They met in Ephesus. Ephesus is kind of centrally located to all of it. A big church there, corrupt by 451. They were worshiping Mary. They're doing a lot of things wrong. But in the council, there in 451, in the synod of Ephesus, they said, Jesus 
And God the Father and the Holy Spirit are one God. Wait a minute. And so then from there, people say, the Catholic Church invented it, 451 A.D. Well, the Catholic Church didn't invent it. God is revealing himself. He is God, and he tells us who we are. He is, I'm sorry, he reveals himself to the world. He starts in the Bible by saying, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the deep. Listen to what happened there. God the Father said, Let there be light. God the Son, because He is the Word, and without Him was not anything made that was made in John chapter 1. And God the Holy Spirit, all wrapped up in the first few verses of the Bible. All the way to the very end. A trinity is a doctrine not resulting from the sloppiness of people preaching, not resulting from a, a, a dogma, a meeting of these churches and these important people and the synod of Ephesus, but long before that, there was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Who is that baby born in Bethlehem? He is the triune God. Reach down because we could not reach up. You understand that? People have been trying to reach up to get saved, trying to work their way to heaven all this time. But Jesus already paid it all. Jesus paid the price for our sins. He is called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God. And then let's just give you two of these for the protection. Everlasting Father. Okay? Everlasting Father. Another claim to the deity of Christ. But what does a father do for us? All right, so if you went down when uh, a few years back when Mr. Tonks had his kids living in the house, right? And you said, man, I think he's got some money in there. I'm going to break down the door and I'm going to sneak in the house. Well, you better come with a cannon. All right? Because what's that guy going to do? He's going to shoot first and ask questions later. Would anybody do any differently for your family? But have you ever doubted, like, in that case? That's why I go practice shooting. Can I shoot straight? If I'm scared to death, you wake me up in the middle of the night, I'm scared to death, can I cock my gun right? Right? I mean, I go practice for that, right? Now watch this. Do I aim straight? I'm a good shot, so I'm pretty sure I could shoot somebody, but scared half to death, you know, middle of the night. Could I make a mistake? Absolutely. But what I'm getting at is the protection you desire to be for your family is that nothing else could harm them from outside. That little baby in Bethlehem's manger is your everlasting father. And he cannot make a mistake. He cannot get off on his aim. He is God. And then the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. We deal here with peace. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. John fourteen twenty seven. Peace. Peace. Now I'm past my time, I know. But this is a name that God said this Son of God is, peace. And so where is the peace? I, I want to I read a little bit to you. 
I was studying for Friday night's songs, and this came across my desk about the song we just sang today, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was a staunch abolitionist living about the time of the Civil War. I think he was born in 1807. And uh, something that he proudly reflected in some of his writings. So when the Civil War came, his oldest son Charlie was eager to do his part. As a second lieutenant, he fought in the Battle of Chancellorsville in Virginia. Very bloody battle back then. Narrowly dodged the Battle of Gettysburg coming down with typhoid right before it happened. He was back in the fight in August of 1863, but there, as the story goes, his luck was running out. He was dining in, uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was dining on December 1st at his home when he received a telegram that his son had been severely wounded four days early. Charlie was shot through the left shoulder with the bullet exiting under his right shoulder blade. Longfellow's son survived the injury and was brought home to recover. He found himself staring down another Christmas season, second time as a widower, lost two wives, with five children depending on him and a child on the brink of death. Outside, he heard the Christmas bells ringing, but I imagine he could also hear the cannon and the gunfire of war in his mind. And he wrote, I heard the bells, verses though exist that are not in our hymnal. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, it says, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how as on that day had come the belfries of all Christendom, had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime, a peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black, accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound the carols drowned, of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And then that last verse setting it straight, then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill toward men. People have asked, well, where is this promised peace? The day I got saved, it came in my heart. The guilt of my sin rolled away, free to live for Christ. Say, been perfect? Of course not. But I got peace in my heart. One day peace will come to every part of this world when the Prince of Peace enters this world on a permanent basis. For now we live with peace inside in our heart where we have the kingdom of God because of salvation. Do you know that kind of peace? Do you know that baby born in Bethlehem's stall? Do you know who he is? Oh, he's wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, 
and the Prince of Peace. Would you bow and pray with me now? Heavenly Father, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for what you've done for our lives. Lord, I am thankful for salvation. And I pray that if those that are here that are not saved, if there are any, that this would be the day of their salvation. And for those that are saved, that this Christmas would on purpose be the day where we exalt your name, celebrate the designations that are given, wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Please bless this invitation. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Is there anybody here who would say, Pastor, if I died today, I don't know if I'm going to heaven. Please pray for me. Is there anybody like that today? I need to be saved. Is this the day when you should make that decision? There's a difference between acknowledging what salvation is and actually being a recipient of that salvation. And at some point, you need to partake. You need to have a place and time where you say, this is the day that I trusted, put my faith only in Christ. Christian, are you ready to celebrate what I think is the greatest part of the year? Well, the world wants you to go buy a bunch of stuff, and it's not wrong to give gifts. The world wants you to concentrate on all those things. But are you ready to celebrate that Jesus loves you, that this Heavenly Father came to give you life? Heavenly Father, I do pray to you. Pray that you'd please touch the hearts of our people. Guide us, direct us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.